You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the only podcast covering the DC comic called Trinity that doesn't have to do with Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Hello and welcome to what's probably going to be a pretty plus-sized couple of episodes of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This, as always, is a internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. However, this time out, uh, most of the special emphasis is going to be shifted on to two differing, well, space cop groups in the DC Universe. Legion... Not the Legion of Superheroes, L period, E period, I, G period, I period, O period, N period. And the Dark Stars. Two groups who, along with the Green Lantern book, made up the comic series DC Universe Trinity, which ran during the cover months of August and September of 1993, and covered a storyline that dealt with the Malthusian gods, basically. There was, oddly enough, a trinity of gods who were basically bent on destroying the planet of Maltus, killing all the people on it, and then renewing the universe in their own image. It's an interesting story, and it basically teams up these three space cop teams for a pretty interesting overarching story. Of course, even though we're going to be loaded down with Green Lantern and the Skomics, we're also going to be covering the Guy Gardner storyline, which we're going to be continuing the Yesterday's Sin story, written by ever-awesome Chuck Dixon and penciled by the great artist Joe State. This is going to, again, shade in a bit of a guy's backstory, this time telling uh, what he was like in his sort of Arthur Fonzarelli days. Yes, those joyous times when Guy would hang out at Arnold's Diner, meet with Potsy and Ralph Malf, steal a car, ride his motorcycle over a shark, and... Oh, wait, no, I am actually confusing that with Happy Days. There are some similarities to Happy Days here, but they pretty much end with Guy's haircut at the time, which is a ridiculous Elvis pompadour. So, you thought Guy's bowl cut was bad? Wait till you get the load of this one. But before we get to those comics, we're going to throw in some trailers for some awesome podcasts that you should all be listening to, and come back and start with the coverage of DC Universe Trinity. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Superman. 
Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Ready to form Voltron! This is a job for Superman. Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform! By the power of Grayskull! For the honor of Grayskull! Hello. I'm the Doctor. Charlie's GeekCast, coming January 1st, 2013, to www.charliesgeekcast.com. And we're back. And even though we're going to be covering a lot of issues this week, and by we, I mean myself, I'm still going to take time out to read the letters that all you wonderful listeners have written in to the Just One of the Guys email bag. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And we're going to start out with a, well, a trio or a trinity. Haha, <laughs> get it? Of course you do. A trinity of letters from Steve Rogers. Uh, they're short ones. Uh, the first one is uh, titled Rejoice, A Guy in His Nord is Digitized. Legally. Steve writes, Hey Sean, just a quick heads up to let you know that DC has been running issues of Green Lantern from interesting, from interestingly both Green Lantern's Light Run and Just One of the Guys. So far, the books you've covered are GL 1 through 10 and 30 through 31. The Wally West issues covered in the story were done that week as well, 32 and 33. Hopefully this means that Guy's solo title can't be far behind, Steve. And of course, he follows up that letter with the next one saying, with the title of, of course, as soon as I sent that, I hear it discussed on the latest show, saying, don't. Ah, well, I'll still be legally purchasing the Guy and Nort saga today anyway, Steve. Thank you, Steve. I'm certain Comixology is glad that you're having to pay to get the uh, Guy and his Nort storyline rather than find it through other nefarious means. Good on you, Steve. And finally, the last letter we got this time out from Steve is titled, Oh, and there already is a Charlie for Space Conservative Chicks. And Steve writes in saying, Former head of security for Babylon 5, Michael Garibaldi, a.k.a. Jerry Doyle. Or maybe Dennis Miller, to be more of a quipping-type boss. Yeah, I I do remember Jerry Doyle uh, having, and I guess he still does have, a a conservative talk show. Um, Obviously, it was one of the smaller ones, and I really like Jerry Doyle's character. I thought Garibaldi was one of the best characters on Babylon 5, and he basically stayed throughout the entire run. I I really need to go back and watch those episodes of Babylon 5, because it was really an enjoyable show, and pretty much all the characters on the show were turning in awesome performances. Except for Bruce Boxleiter, who decided to peeve Scott Gardner. But that's neither here nor there. But thank you, Steve, for writing in. I appreciate that. And uh, thank you for reminding me about Jerry Doyle. I I need to go back and pick up some issues, or some not issues, some episodes of Babylon 5 and watch those. I wonder if they're on streaming on Netflix. 
Uh, check that out later. The next message comes from Scott Davis, our wonderful Canadian listener, who writes in with the question, Hey, Sean, have you had a chance to read Green Lantern Corps number zero relating to Guy's origin? What did you think? And will you address it in a future podcast? Scott. Well, I wrote back to Scott and told him that, unfortunately, I'm not reading any of the new 52 Green Lantern titles. It's just kind of a personal thing. It's not that they're bad books. You know, from what I've heard, they're actually pretty decent. It's just, I guess, I'm kind of enjoying what I'm reading right now. I'm enjoying these books, and comparably, I'm thinking Gerard Jones is a much better writer and had a much better grasp on the characters of Green Lantern. Uh, I really wish that after what we get to here in a while that Gerard Jones would have stayed on the book longer than he did because I think he would have taken the book in a really interesting direction. And even with what happened and who came on to write the book, I think it would have been... I think these stories that, uh, that I'm covering at this time are more interesting than what I've heard some of the stories are from then. But to, to give a little information about the uh, Guy Gardner Zero book that they printed in, uh, not Guy Gardner Zero, but the uh, Green Lantern Corps Zero book, it essentially covers a lot of the stuff that happened in Guy Gardner Yesterday's Sins, but it tweaks it around a little bit. Uh, Guy's father is still kind of hateful and dismissive of Guy, but his father, instead of being a dock worker or just a journeyman, is uh, basically a police officer. And Mace's brother becomes a police officer as well, while Guy is sort of a punk hoodlum. It's a change in the story that, that doesn't really phase me one way or another, but I just wasn't all that interested in it. However, someone who is interested in it is Sally P., who uh, runs the website Green Lantern Butts Forever. Now, don't be uh, turned off by the title, especially if you're male. It's not just about, you know, looking at Green Lantern Butts. Sally P. is an incredible fan of the Green Lantern comic books, especially of Guy Gardner, and she did a wonderful write-up on the issue zero of uh, Green Lantern. So if you want to go check out some people who are covering the modern DC Universe, especially the Green Lantern Corps and the Green Lantern comics, with a uh, knowledge of what has come before it, definitely go check out the uh, website Green Lantern Butts Forever. Um, I know it's... I need to probably have it linked on my site, but I know if you go to Fortress of Bailey-Tude or uh, uh, Views from the Longbox, Michael Bailey has it covered on his site, so you get the link to it there. And finally, we get a letter this time out from Professor Allen co-host of the Book Guys show and uh, basically the biggest fan of Doctor Doom out there. And who wouldn't be because Doom will destroy you if you're not. But Professor Allen writes in with the title, Worth a Quarter. And the letter goes, Sean, at my local comic shop's recent 25 cent sale, I found Guy Gardner Warrior number 25. I know you're still months away from getting to this issue, but I'm looking forward to reading it along with you when that issue comes up. I don't want to put any undue pressure on you, and I know all the podcast episodes are free and all that, and the original issue costs ten times what I just paid for it, but you're really going to need to make that particular episode worth each and every one of the 25 cents I spent. Just saying. 
Professor Allen co-hosts the Book Guys podcast. FYI, I mentioned your show when we blogged about it when I found the found it in the quarter bins, and he has a link to it here. And I, maybe I'll pay, post that up to Professor Allen's blog. But uh, I think the uh, blog's name is Eyes and Ears Blog at blogspot.com. So if you want to go check out Professor Allen's musings on comic books, definitely go do that. Professor Allen is a great guy. The Book Guys show is a wonderful podcast, and they even have a spinoff, which unfortunately Professor Allen hasn't been on, called The Emergency Broadcast System, which Paul Alves hosts as well. All these shows and these blogs are well worth your time and effort. Go check them out. However, as an answer to Professor Allen's email, I will tell him this. When we get to issue 25, I guarantee that the price that you pay to get this podcast will be doubled. No, it will be paid back a thousandfold in the entertainment quality that will be put forth. You can you can put your money on it. The money you put towards downloading this podcast. That's not saying much. Anyhow... That's the end of the mailbag. Thank you again, everyone, for writing in. I appreciate every single letter that I get, and I can't thank you guys enough. Like I've said before, the fact that people listen to this goofy show about me talking about a really ancillary character and an overlooked title just says a lot to me. I can't honestly say how much I appreciate you guys listening. So... What we're going to do now is we're going to start in on our epic coverage of the DC Universe Trinity, starting with DC Universe Trinity, issue number one, which was cover dated August 1993 with a release date on June 15, 1993. It had a cover price, a whopping cover price of $2.95 US, $3.95 Canada, and two whole pounds over in the UK, so... This was a pricey one, but it was uh, it was a not really a prestige format, but it was one of the higher-end comics of the time. The cover artist for the book was Gene Ha, and the cover inker for the book was Romeo Tangal, which is always awesome. The book is split into three features, each of them dealing with the separate uh, comic books, Green Lanterns, Legion, and the Dark Stars. The first feature is the Green Lantern feature, which is written by Gerard Jones, penciled by Gene Haw, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert Guzman, colored by Stuart Schaffitz, assistant edited by Eddie Berganza, and edited by Kevin Dooley. We open to a splash page of a giant female alien doing some major renovations on some alien planet. She proclaims that her name is Quora, and her holy deeds need to be done, apparently for dirt cheap. Cut to Hal Jordan flying a bitchy client to a business meeting. The Guardian summons Hal, who knocks out the passenger, lands the plane, and then takes off to the planet Scylla. He there meets up with Quora, and they have a little one-sided fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. Soundly defeated, Hal flies back to Oa, confronts the Guardians with the info on Quora, and the little blue imps proceed to lose their collective excrement. They send Hal back to the Book of Oa to study up on Quora, the Creator, Archer, the Sustainer, and Sodar, or Tzodar. It's got that weird TZ spelling in the beginning. The Destroyer, three Malthusian gods who are destined to bring about the destruction of Maltus and the renewal of the universe. 
Having finished his required reading for the issue, Hal gets sent to Malthus by the Bedwetting Guardians to observe the arrival of this trinity of the gods. This leads into the second feature in the book, which is the Darkstar feature, which was written by Jan Mi- Michael Jan Friedman, penciled by Travis Charest, inked by Kevin, or sorry, Ken H. Branch, Steve George, Peter Gross, Andrew Peepoy, and Mike Sellers. The letters were M. Or Robert M. Pinaha and L. Lois Buhalis. Colorist was Stuart Chaffetz, assistant editor was Brian Augustin, and editor was Ruben Diaz. On the planet Elyron, three dark stars engage the giant Malthusian god Archor, but have no luck in affecting him at all. The cannon fodder dark stars get eye-beamed real good, but not before they send out a call for reinforcements. But those reinforcements, dark star Colin Farrell and... Oh, wait, no, not Colin Farrell, I get them mixed up. Farron Kolos, as well as two others, arrive just in time to see the last cannon fodder dark star die. Yeah, the stereotypical, I will avenge you, statement is made by Kolos, and the reinforcements attack, only to have Archor phase from existence. Confused, Kolos swears that he'll find out what this is all about as he prepares to bury his dead comrades. And finally, the last feature in the uh, book is the Legion feature, which was co-plotted by Mark Wade, and then co-plotted and penciled by Barry Kitson, Inked by John Stokes, lettered by Albert Guzman, colored by Stuart Schaffitz, assistant editor was Frank Pitteris and Peter Tavasi, and the editor was Dan Raspler. On the Coruscant-like planet of Baltus, Legion, which I'll get this out of the way, stands for Licensed Extra-Governmental Interstellar Operatives Network, L period, E period, G period, I period, O period, Ed period. Members Phase, Captain Comet, and Hayata are getting settled in as their defense force is setting up shop there. The group encounters their leader, Vril Vril Dox, son of Brainiac, who takes the team to the ancient archaeological dig site. Legion rock creature recruit Burton Dibb signals the group, showing them the stone tablet with ancient writing and images on it. Unable to translate it, the group is distracted by a lightning blast which brings forth the giant Malthusian god, Sodar. Dox uses a hover sled to try and talk to the god face-to-face, and gets an energy blast for his troubles. Captain Comet and the rest of the group take the giant on, but they're vastly overpowered. Confident that once Legion reinforcements arrive, this one giant will be easily taken down, Dox looks up to see the gigantic god has been joined by two more, and the Malthusian gods are now ready to cleanse Malthus and the universe. And that ends the first issue of the Trinity story arc. Basically, the story was crossed over between the Green Lantern, Darkstar, and Legion books, and had bookends of a sort of prestige format comic in Trinity number one and number two, uh, starting and ending the issues. In this first part of Trinity, it's kind of nice. The uh, book is divided up, as I Ended to, or as I read to you, into three parts, dealing with each individual group. Now, the Green Lantern book is probably, or the Green Lantern portion of the book is probably the most important one because it gives you the basic background of what's going on. And the Book of Oa is a nice narrative, uh, sort of expositional news network for the entire story. It gives the idea that a long time ago there was this creator, 
Dalon, who created the, who had these three offsprings, Ankor, Sodar, and Korra, who were a race of gods who were supposed to basically cleanse the universe. It's a typical sort of Greco-Roman storyline of the children killing the father and then coming back later to finish the job of what they were actually planned to do. And when we get further along into the storyline, we'll get more into the motivations of these gods and the motivation of their creator as well. The next portion of the book, the Dark Star story, is, for my money, the weakest part of the story. It's not that it's not entertaining, but it's essentially just a punchy-punchy run-run issue. You get the Dark Stars, who, unfortunately I wasn't reading at the time, going on fighting up against Angkor, and the thing is, I'm not really connected to any of these characters at all, so the fact that these characters die in this book doesn't really hold a lot of meaning for me. If I was reading a Dark Stars book, I might be more engaged in the storyline. For what it is, it basically just sits as a placeholder to enhance, to bring forth the idea that the Dark Stars are also going to be a part of this storyline. And finally, the Legion issue, it does a bit more shading in of who the characters are and uh, what the Legion is supposed to be doing. The character of Vril Dox, who's the leader of Legion, who I mentioned in the synopsis, is the son of Brainiac, is a really interesting character. He's very conniving, he's obviously very intelligent, and he's a thinker. He's a planner, and he's kind of manipulating things behind the scenes. This is a good, this is a comparable portion of the uh, initial Trinity story arc, in that it develops the characters a lot more and gives you a lot more information about the characters. Plus, it also lays forth a bit more of the storyline of what's going on and brings forth this ancient tablet, which is going to be kind of important in later issues. But moving on, the next story in the Trinity story arc uh, begins in Green Lantern number 44. I'm going to be covering Green Lantern pretty heavily because, well, this is a Green Lantern podcast, and the other stories I'll just be tangentially covering. I may do a small amount of notes on them, but the Green Lantern issue is the one I'm going to focus on most. So, let's go ahead and get started with Green Lantern number 44, which again was cover dated August 1993, with the release date of June 22, 1993. It was cover price $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and 70 UK. The title was Urban Renewal. The writer was Gerard Jones. Penciler was Gene Ha. Inker was Romeo Tangal. Letterer was Albert Guzman. Colorist was Anthony Tolan. Assistant editor was Eddie Braganza. And editor was Kevin Dooley. On Maltus, Zodar is being true to his title and doing a heck of a lot of destroying, while his brethren Archer and Quora are assisting in their goal of cleansing the planet. The citizens look on at the rampaging gods, some cowering in fear, others reveling in the promise of a new golden age. Green Lantern Hal Jordan streaks across the sky, wanting to try and stop the destruction of the Triarch, but knowing that the Guardians ordered him only to observe. Hal fudges the orders a little by confronting the Malthusian gods and asking them why they're doing this. Sodar grows tired of the impudence of the lantern and energy blasts Hal into a crowd of people. Fed up, Geo looks to go kick some king-sized ass when he's stopped by a Malthusian named Manu. 
He tells Hal about the prophecy of the Triarch and how it'd be sacrilege to attack them. Unfortunately, another group doesn't know about the whole sacrilege thing, as the crowd witnesses Sodar taken down by a missile explosion to the face. Hal heads out to investigate and finds Legion troops firing on the Ancient One. Wondering what these fly-by-night groups are doing, Hal decides to let them be until Sodar finally causes some loss of life, making Hal have to take action. Meanwhile, on Earth, Carol Ferris is walking back to her apartment in Montoya Bay. She opens the door to find Tom Kalmaku sitting in the apartment, waiting for her return. It seems that Tom has some questions about a Green Fortunes Corporation that is funding Hal's business, as well as a Crosswinds Corporation that's funding that. Tom says that the strange part was that after he started investigating, his lawyer and the lawyer's aide disappeared, along with all the info on Crosswind. Angered that Tom thinks that she's involved, Carol tells Tom to get out, slamming the door as he leaves and then tearfully breaking down when he's gone. In the other apartment, Tom is approached by his wife, Turka, who asks just what the heck is going on. Tom replies that he doesn't know anymore, as he heads to the place where he keeps his Green Lantern journal. Certain that what he's doing is for the best, Tom searches his notes for any information about how Carol's father died. Back on Maltus, Hal is watching the Legion troops get their butts handed to them. Hal warns Manu that if this keeps going on, innocent Malthusians are going to be dying soon. Manu says that any death is the will of the gods, but Hal isn't willing to let that happen as he engages in a little Jack and the Beanstalk level of Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. While Hal engages Sodar, Grill Dox approaches Manu and demands that he translate the text that was on the tablet he discovered. Manu does until he starts shouting that the words are nothing more than blasphemy and lies, causing a, a concerned Dox to further wonder what's going on. Having been blasted into space, Hal redoubles his attack on Sodar. He attempts to distract him, but is soon enthralled by Archer, who turns the Emerald Warrior into a groveling sycophant. Hal snaps out of the mind control, only to have Archer transform Hal into a blue-skinned guardian something which watching Malthusians claim to be a miracle. Zodar says that the transformation is a useless gesture, and the only way to return to their intended work is to slay this emerald insect. But before Hal is turned into a black smear on the pavement, Legion member Lobo flies through on his space hog and rescues him. Hoping that Lobo is here to help take down these destructive deities, Hal asks what's going on and gets his answer from Legion leader Vril Dox who says that this is a Legion job, and that Hal needs to get out of their way. And with that, we get the end of the second book in the trilogy story arc. Now, out of all the trilogy issues, or not trilogy, trinity issues that come out this month, the Green Lantern issue is the one that deals with more than just what's going on in the big event. I think this is a real credit to Gerard Jones, who seems to really want to carry on the storyline that he's planned out. Unfortunately, looking ahead in the book, it really doesn't play out the way I think it should. I think Gerard Jones wanted to have a lot more go on with this, but unfortunately I think for whatever reasons he was rushed and had to finish it. 
but it's a great testament to Gerard Jones as a writer that he's able to keep his own story elements that he wanted to have going throughout the continuing Green Lantern series in this sort of epic crossover between these three books. So kudos again to Gerard Jones. As for notes on the issue, we'll start with the cover, and the cover is just kind of a big meh. It's got Hal flying through the air, fighting Entropy, which is odd because I thought that was a few issues. Oh no, it's not Entropy, it's it's Sodar. Oddly enough, when Hal fights a giant, strange alien being, uh, it all kind of bleeds together in my mind. Page one, we get a nice splash of Sodar, the Destroyer, basically doing what his name tells that he's doing. And I have to give a lot of credit to Gene Ha here, who does a magnificent job of drawing the sort of epic, very crowded, very stylized version of Maltus. Uh, the buildings are highly detailed. They look very futuristic, a lot different than what we'd see on the uh, in the Green Lantern book with the cities on Oa. It's a l- very reminiscent of the uh, city of Coruscant in the uh, Star Wars prequel films. So, if you know what I'm talking about there, you'll kind of get an idea of what the buildings look like on Malthus. They're very futuristic, a lot of skyways, very silver and blue, nice-looking artwork here by Gene Ha. And the artwork goodness continues on page page 3, panel 2, as we see the Malthusians looking up at the gods as they're doing their handiwork, and all of the images of these people looks different. There's not a facial feature that looks the same, and it's kind of weird. I guess because Malthus is this overpopulated planet, a lot of the people have donned weird headgear, I guess, to sort of enhance themselves or keep them from having to breathe in the noxious atmosphere or sustaining them in some way. But it's really good artwork. All the faces look different. Gene Ha really good artist and he's really detailed so I'm I'm liking this a lot. Skipping ahead of you since a lot of the story deals with you know talking and fighting moving on to page uh, 9 panel 1 uh, we see Carol coming back to her apartment and it's just a neat little panel here where we've got a character with a, with a t-shirt on uh, reading Comics Cafe and it says comics are more important than food and it's just I wonder if there's actually around the DC office, or maybe this was something that George Jones put in, who was a friend with someone who might have owned a, a comic book shop that named the Comics Cafe. But it's a nice little plug here, and I just noticed it, thought it was kind of interesting. Page 10 to panel 8, after Hal, or not Hal, after Tom confronts Carol about the information at the crosswinds, and she kind of deflects it and tells him to get out of her apartment. We see Carol, uh, you know, with her arm up against the door, with her head down, just saying, oh God, oh God. So you know Carol knows something about this, and it's nice how Gerard Jones keeps seeding this and seeding this and building it up. And like I said prior to this, it's disappointing that I think that he wasn't able to completely bring forth this storyline. It's nice that he's able to continue it in this overarching multi-part thing but unfortunately I think this much like the whole thing with Lenween and the Predator was probably supposed to go out a bit longer and 
because of certain things that are going to happen in the future, Jones wasn't able to finish it up the way he wanted to. Then on page 11, I just want to say about Gene Ha, his artwork here being great. Uh, I think he draws the best Tom Kalmaku that I've seen in these issues. He actually looks like he might be of a Native American or Inuit predisposition. He doesn't look, you know, just like uh, uh, your standard, you know, Caucasian. He has that sort of look of someone who has, you know, Inuit heritage. And uh, it's really good art. I just, I'm predisposed to enjoy M.D. Bright because he's been such a big part of this book. But I really like the fact that Gene Ha was brought in to do these issues. He's a very good, well, substitute for Bright. And I'm really digging the art here. And again, on pages 12 and 13, and throughout a lot of these issues, we'll get these big one-page or two-page splashes. And here we get some more great Gene Ha art with very detailed alien ships, really good detail on the Legion soldiers. In fact, I like the fact that some of the Legion soldiers aren't all super-fit, superhuman uh, mega-soldiers. One of the guys looks like he's kind of dumpy. Might have a bit of a bit of a gut. The uh, leader looks like uh, the guy who's looking in binoculars. Looks like he might have a, might be a bit older and has a bit of a punch. So it's good that he's not just drawing a stock character and just placing it in random places in the uh, artwork. He's drawing different characters and drawing a lot of detail. I mean. The buildings and the ships and everything on this panel is incredibly detailed. It's something that uh, a regular artist could have skimped on, but I think Gene Ha just really did a great job in putting, putting it forth in this book. Page 15, panel 4. Now, I know Howland's got an ego, but right here, he decides to whang a god on the head with his typical ring construct hammer. That's some brass cojones there, Hal. Then on page 17, as Vril Dox finally comes up to the uh, Malthusian Manu, he brings the tablet with him. And thankfully, when it was seated in the Trinity book, I kind of figured that this tablet would just be some sort of MacGuffin and really wouldn't have anything to do with the overall story. But it looks like it's going to be an essential part of it and will be playing out in later issues. Page 18, panels 3 and 4. It irks me whenever things like this happen, but Hal's thinking to himself as he is getting ready to fight the uh, Malthusian gods because if there's anything benevolent about these jokers, then I'm Guy Gardner. And I. It, it just goes to the character of Hal that he can be kind of a jerk, especially when dealing with the character of Guy Gardner. Now, I know the two have a bit of rivalry, but it just irks me when how this is on Guy. Simply because I think Guy's more awesome than how, but that's just personal opinion. Then on page 22, yeah, it has been a few issues since we've had Lobo in the uh, comic, so it's about time for him to make a cameo appearance. I guess it's also fortuitous that he's here because he's a member of Legion, so... It was expected for him to show up, but again, if you're a 90s comic, need to have Lobo in it. There you go. But that does it for coverage of Green Lantern. 
And rather than taking a break here, I'm going to go ahead and cover the other two books in the Trinity story arc and give them sort of shorter coverage, but give you an idea of what's going on in the overall storyline. The next book in the uh, Trinity storyline was Legion 1993, or Legion 93, issue number 57, which again was cover dated August 1993, with a release date of June 29, 1993. The cover price was $1.75 US, $2.25 Canada, and a pound twenty-five in the UK. The title was Police Action. The co-plotter and scripter was Mark Wade, the co-plotter and layouts was Barry Kitson, finishers were John Stokes and Robin Smith, colorist was Gene D'Angelo, letterer was Gaspar Saladino, assistant editor Peter Tomasi, and editor Dan Raspler. As the Triarch is tearing down Maltas, Lobo has Green Lantern under his boot. Literally, as Vril Dox demands that Hal leave. Hal doesn't take it kindly, and launches Lobo into the sky via a ring construct spring, and takes off to try to stop the Triarch. Dox calls up their command ship and gives orders for the Legion supers to take out GL, because his interference undermines the Legion's authority at Malthus. Getting the message telepathically, Captain Comet and Lobo engage in some fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, with Green Lantern, while Dox and the rest of the Legion investigate the ancient relic that they found. Eventually, Dox contacts one of the controllers with info about the attacking gods and asks if he can provide some help. Meanwhile, the fight between Lobo, Comet, and GL has blasted the captain high above the planet, where he sees a pattern to the path of the gods' destruction. Comet contacts Brill Dox, who, along with Manu, flies up to Comet to see the pattern. From the looks of it, the Triarch are doing some type of terraforming, and Dox orders the Legion to stop fighting with the Green Lantern and turn their attention to stopping the rampaging gods. Royally peeved, Lobo asks why they should stop pounding on the Green Lantern. However, his question is soon answered, as Farron Kolos and the Dark Stars are here to take care of Hal. Now, this issue definitely contains a lot of your stereotypical punchy-punchy run-run in it, but it still manages to advance the story in an intelligent manner. To me, it seems that the Legion seems to be where the brains of this trio of books resides, as we just see Vril Dox attempting to decipher the mystery behind the ancient tablet that they found, and how it relates to these giant attacking beings. I'm not going to go page-for-page notes on this, because, well, this is a Green Lantern podcast, and Legion isn't Green Lantern. So what I'm going to do now is head on to the fourth book in the uh, Trinity storyline, which is Dark Stars number 11 which was cover dated, again, August 1993, with a release date on July 6, 1993. Cover price was $1.75 US, $2.25 Canada, and a pound twenty-five UK. The title was Escalation of Hostilities. The writer was Michael Jan Friedman. The new art team was Mitch Bird and Ken Branch. The letterer was Albert Guzman. Colorist was Steve Matson, And Will Make You Believe a Man Can Fly was Brian Augustine. And Believes It Already was... Ruben Diaz, obviously the assistant editor and editor, but they put clever little Jack and Stan titles in there for them, so there you go. Arriving on Malthus, the Dark Stars, led by Colin Farrell, but, no, sorry, Farron Kolos, skip dealing with Green Lantern and attack Quora instead. 
Of course, it goes poorly, as one would imagine, and GL ends up saving one of the Dark Stars, who is encased in a plexiglass bubble. The Dark Star falls to the ground, but before she can shatter into a million pieces, a green hand construct reaches out and catches her. Kolos and Jordan decide that it might help if they call the truce and figure out a way to fight these so-called gods. Meanwhile, in space, Controller Priggots is speaking with someone named Director Jedigar. I guess he's the head of the Dark Stars, who knows. They talk about what's going on with the Triarch as Jedigar gets impatient with the sick fan Controller. We get a quick cut to the ongoing McFightenstein on the planet, and then we return to Jedigar and Priggots playing expositional news network in regards to the Triarch. It seems that they were the children of the creator god Dalon, who rebelled against his authority, killed him, and then buggered off because they felt guilty. But now they're back to level Maltus and restructure the universe. And in the end, the Dark Star leaders agree to let these supposed gods do their divine work. Back on Maltus, Green Lantern and the Dark Stars try and stop the rampaging gods by destroying their work. It gets the attention of Korra, who turns her attentions to the group of space cops. But soon, more Dark Stars arrive and demand that Kolos let the Triarch do their work. At the same time, Brill Docks and Legion are investigating a mountain at the middle of the Triarch's path of destruction. They break into it and find the hibernating body of Dalon, the Triarch's father. Back outside, the Dark Stars are arguing amongst themselves as to what they should do. Kolos said that they should attack the Triarch, and a fight breaks out between the members of the group. Hal decides to help with Kolos, and he gets some unexpected backup from Kilowog and the rest of the Green Lantern Corps. And again, another solid issue, uh, which I wasn't really expecting from the Dark Star title. Uh, I really like uh, Michael Jan Friedman's writing. Uh, it's really succinct, and uh, it, he's fleshing out the characters really well. Um, thankfully, it's not just a big fight sequence, although there is a lot of fighting in it. And one thing that I really do like about it is the artwork. And that might be particularly because it's being penciled by Mitch Bird, who, along with Dan Davis, will eventually become the artist for the Guy Gardner Warrior title. And they really bring a interesting, dynamic look to Guy Gardner, and it's something that they started essentially in uh, an issue of Green Lantern Annual Number Two, which unfortunately was a part of the Bloodline storyline and introduced the character of I think Nightblade. And the really only good thing, in my opinion, that came out of that storyline was. Bird and Davis's artwork, but the artwork here is really good. Plus, we get uh, exposition telling what's going on with the Triarch and some more history about them. So, really good issue, and that wraps up the uh, first half of the Trinity storyline. So, as I am <laughs> desperately parched and need something to drink, I'm going to take a quick break, put some promos in here for some podcasts that you all should be listening to. And once I've refreshed my beverage, I will come back with my coverage of Guy Gardner, number 13. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? 
this just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman wait, wait, from... Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Hey, kids, go! Bugger off, kid. I'm talking here. Hey, folks, it's your old pal Murray Clawhammer here. And boy, do I have some good news for you. The Hey Kids Comics Podcast is moving. As of January 1st, you can find your Hey Kids Comics Podcast on the Two True Freaks feed. That's at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Libsyn spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. I love this show. It's like drinking Earl Grey tea next to the Thames River and having scones instead of... Sitting in my mom's basement and drinking Dr. Pepper and and eating little Debbie snack cakes. Anywho, thanks to some sketchily acquired photographs, two true freaks and Demonza Corp anticipate a long and fruitful relationship with Hey Kids Comics. And remember, come New Year's 2013, you can find your Hey Kids Comics at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. L-I-B-S-Y-N. They're British. This offer is void in the event of Mayan prophecy being accurate. And we're back. Uh, that was that was fun, but it was a bit longer than I expected. But I think I got everything covered in there. I, I hope you guys get a general idea of what's going on in this story arc. It's an interesting one that I think is pretty much overlooked because now Trinity is related to the Matt Wagner story that they released a few years back, which of course, deals with the first meeting of Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. So, there you go. But uh, it's time to do as we always do in the podcast. And again, I'm using pl- 
plural, and it's only me in this room, so I'm sorry. We're going to take a look at Guy Gardner number 13, which was cover dated October 1993, with a release date on September 7th of 1993. Cover price was still $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and $70p UK. Title this time was Yesterday's Sins Part 3, Inside Out, Outside In. Writer Guy was Chuck Dixon. Penciler Guy was Joe Staten. Inker Guy was Terry Beatty. Letterer Guy was Albert Guzman. Color Guy was Anthony Tolan. Daddy Guy was Eddie Berganza. And What a Guy was Kevin Dooley. Yep, more goofy titles. At Arnold's Diner, the Fonz and Richie are taking out some thugs that said some unflattering things about young Joni and... Wait, no. Dream Guy and Rebel Without a Cause Guy are engaging in a little Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, with some thugs that want to beat up young Guy for some things he said about the thug's girl. The ginger duo makes quick work of the group and decides to beat Cheeks as soon as the police pull up. Driving away, Dream Guy tells young Guy about the brain slug, the mind probe, and how this is all building up to creating a duplicate of Guy. Dream Guy suggests that Young Guy feed the Brain Slug information, misinformation and embed a code word that will make the duplicate go all crazy when he hears it. Young Guy only wonders why people in the future have such stupid haircuts, to which Dream Guy politely decided to pound the crap out of the smartass. But before he can, the draw will wake him from the mind probe and take him back to the cell. In the cell, the Captain Lanterns are working, working on their escape plan. RRU-92, who has accidentally been decapitated last issue, has finally agreed to analyze the energy field surrounding them in exchange for the reattachment of his head. Guy approves of the teamwork going on, but he doesn't have time for a group hug, as the Drawl are back for more mind-probing action. This time, Guy is 18 and breaking into cars. Somewhat poorly, it must be said, as he's caught red-handed by the police, who recognize him as Mason's younger brother. The cops handcuff Guy and drive him around. Before his 18th, he would have gone to Juvie Hall for his crimes. Now it's off to jail. But the officers have a different plan for him, as they drop him off at the football field of Guy's high school. On his knees, with his hands cuffed behind his back, Guy hears a familiar voice, and looking up, sees his brother Mace in full police blues. Mace wails on Guy, demanding that he straighten up, get a job, and make something of himself. Handing Guy a wad of cash, Mace walks away, telling Guy to get home and get things in order. And that's just what Guy does. He gets a real job, he works his way through college, and he plays in plays for the Michigan football team, all the while keeping a solid grade point average. In his senior year, Guy's team makes it to a bowl game, and with Michigan trailing by three and no time left on the clock, Guy catches the winning pass and scores the winning touchdown. Heading home triumphant, Guy walks in on his parents, only to have his father yell at him for his insensitivity, as Mace has been shot in the line of duty. Back in the cage, the Lanterns have worked out a plan to disrupt the energy field holding them captive, but it might destroy RRU-92. Plus, they need something organic as a conductor. Guy graciously volunteers Gapak for the job, as he really can't communicate with the others and tell him that he doesn't want to do this. The pink goose plugs into the field and shorts it out, frying himself in the process. But luckily, Gapak's race is able to reconstitute, and Guy and the lanterns head toward the armory to grab some weapons and kick some ass. 
The escapees are doing well until they round the corner and run straight into Guy's doppelganger, armed with Guy's fully charged ring. In this issue, we really get to see what Guy would be like if he had gone down the path of the sort of crookedness and hoodlum... hoodlumness, I guess. If he would have been a hoodlum during his youth. People like to think of Guy as a real jerk with no moral compunctions and just a very base person. And we get kind of a glimpse of what he would have been like if things hadn't turned out the right way for him. So... Again, more shading in for his character. We also get some of the shading in of Guy's history that was covered in Secret Origins number 7, which, plug, if you want to hear me talk about that, it's on uh, episode 13 of Green Lantern's Light. Go check that podcast out. Always awesome. Love the show. Uh, But other than that, I really don't have any other notes on this, except for it's just a great issue. I've got a few notes, and we'll go ahead and go through them right now. On the cover, we get the same setup as we have in the previous cover covers, with the uh, left one-eighth of the cover being devoted to uh, Guy in the past. And this time, we've got the typical green stripe with the great Joe Stanton image of Guy in his traditional Green Lantern uniform. On the other side of the cover, we get essentially Guy and his either younger self. Well, yeah, it's his younger self. He's got the different haircut. You know, standing back to back, getting ready to take on some goons. It's a very, it's very sharks and minnows or whatever those guys from you know, Rent were. I can't remember. West Side Story. Yay, preparation. Page one, we've got the opening splash of Guy and his younger self outside Scotty's Diner, which looks very similar to a sort of 1950s American graffiti Happy Days, uh, Arnold's Diner type thing. It's a. Uh, it also is kind of reminiscent of the uh, diner that they went to in Pulp Fiction. It's a very domed diner, a circular one, uh, with of course the stereotypical 1950s convertible cars with their big fins and everything outside. I'm wondering if this is actually a Baltimore landmark or if this is just something that they came up for the book. Or if it's just, again, a reference to Happy Days or American Graffiti. I have no idea. I don't know if anyone who lives in Baltimore is actually listening to this show. So if there is something like that, and you have this comic, and there's a Scotty's Burger or Scotty's Diner there, write in and let me know. Page 5, panel 4. I like the fact that the words that Guy comes up with to make his doppelganger go nuts are words like shaboom or Hassan's Pepper. I'm glad that he's uh, using these sort of 1950s stereotypical, well, not catchphrases, but just things that are tied to this era as code words that would cause his double to go crazy. I think it's kind of interesting, and it also, again, does a bit more development of Guy's character as someone who grew up during the 50s and 60s and was influenced by that uh, lifestyle. Page 9, panel 6, we get another image of Guy, a bit older than when he was at the beginning of the book, and he's still into his hoodlum days, and he's trying to boost another car, and the police come pick him up, and you get an image, it's a 
black image with basically just guy lit by the flashlight of the police officer, and you've got the guy, the police officer's hand on guy's face, and guy has a little uh, shaggy chin fuzz there. So, thank goodness guy didn't you know hang around with talking dogs and guys in ascots, because then this might be a whole different book. Pages ten through twelve. Here are some great great storytelling in the book, and it's a stark contrast to the scene in last issue between Guy and Mace. This time out, it starts out in the same coloring with the sort of dark blues and purples as Guy's being led to the football field. Then when he gets there, everything turns stark bright, and there's a lot of yellows and oranges and a lot of light, so it's dramatically different than the last time that Guy and Mace met up. Uh, It's also interesting here that the roles are kind of reversed, with Mace being the protector and telling Guy what he should do, and Guy being the hoodlum, the one who's getting in trouble. So it's a nice juxtaposition that uh, Dixon has done, and Staten has been able to do with the artwork as well. Um, Again, great story work here, and you can tell that Mace can relate to Guy. He's gone through his own troubles, and he's overcome them, and he's trying to get Guy to go through the same thing, to try and better his life. So, really good really good storytelling here. Page 13, we get a kind of montage group of panels where it shows Guy turning his life around. In the first panel, he's working as a burger cook at a local restaurant, maybe even the uh, restaurant from the beginning of the episode, or the issue. Then in the second panel, you see that Guy is studying at college, and interestingly enough, he's studying electrical engineering, which obviously will come forward in uh, a later part of the issue to help with the escape. Plus, there's a couple of girls behind Guy, sort of silhouetted, just in the background, uh, monochromatic, and they are really digging on Guy. In fact, I'm wondering if Staten actually drew, because one of these girls looks like it might be the girl from the Secret Origins issue, the one that Guy took to 2001 and found it to be incredibly boring. Of course, the later two panels show uh, Guy playing on the football team and finally sort of coming into his own there, so we get more background about Guy being a football player. And the final panel, of course, is Guy at home with his family and a of course, Mace is completely honored, and everyone's very happy to have him around, and Guy's sitting there reading his, I'm assuming, his engineering book. So, even when he's at home, even though he's made something of himself, Guy's still the forgotten one. Moving on to page 15, panel 5, as Guy comes home to uh, sort of, well, I guess gloat is a term that would work here. He's really enthused about what he did, and of course Raleigh's there to completely take away his enthusiasm. Um, This is the scene where Raleigh tells Guy that Mace just got shot, and even though Guy succeeded in graduating college by putting himself through on his own, playing football for the Michigan football team, taking him to the bowl, and scoring the winning touchdown for the team, Raleigh's there to completely take a dump on Guy's achievements. Nothing is good enough in the eyes of Raleigh Gardner that Guy does. And 
again, it gives more impetus to why Guy is kind of so angry about the world. I don't want to lie the entire attitude of Guy on his father issues, but you can see some of the background that would lead to Guy's persona in the uh, current day comic books. Page 17, as Guy and the Lanterns trying to figure out a way to break out of the force field, it uh, just shows that Guy's studying of electrical engineering was finally paid off as he figures out to use Gapak, the sort of slime mold Green Lantern, as a conductor for the electricity that RRU-92 is going to uh, put off. And then, of course, on panel 19, or sorry, page 19, panel 1, it's kind of nice and I guess kind of convenient that Kapak really couldn't die. Um, even though he would have, it would have been neat if he sacrificed his life to save the Lanterns, it's also kind of nice the fact that his, his deed didn't destroy him. They give the sort of MacGuffin out that he can actually reconstitute himself, something that we couldn't have known about prior to this, but makes it to the fact where he didn't have to actually sacrifice himself. So that's kind of neat, and of course, Kapak will, as the rest of the Lanterns, probably be featured in other stories along down the road. But that finishes up my notes for the issue, and because the notes are finished, it is time to go and take a look at the ads that were in this fine 90s comic. Starting with the inside front cover, we've got Get Ready to Experience a Milestone. Coming in July, Milestone, the Dakota Universe trading cards from Skybox. And we've got a couple of them. We've got Icon and Rob, uh, Robin, Icon and Rocket, and Hardware. Uh, these are two of the uh, Milestone comics, which were done by uh, creators like, oh, Jimmy Pomiati was behind one of them, and Dwayne McDuffie was also one of them. So, really good stuff. I've heard really good uh, stories were told in these books. Um, I'm a big fan of Dwayne McDuffie. I loved his uh, little mini-series that he did over for Marvel of Damage Control, but I never really got into the Milestone universe other than, you know, periodic issues of Static Shock. So, the cards look nice, though, and uh, trading cards at the time were really big. Then, moving on, we've got something else that's really big. Really big douche. It's, uh, it's Rocky D. Dinosaur extraordinaire with this advertisement for Brock's Rocks, and he's bursting out of the, uh, I guess, out of the ad here, screaming dynamite. Very unlike J- Jimmy J.J. Walker, as we get an advertisement for Brock's Rocks, the candy that looks like rocks but tastes like chewy grape things. Nice. Then the next page, we get another very 90s ad. We get the uh, Batman Nightfall Skycaps from Skybox. And Michael Bailey has discussed this, and I'll go ahead and reiterate what he said. If you don't remember what Skycaps are, Skycaps are pogs. They're little round uh, plastic pieces with artwork on them from various uh, either either video games or... TV shows or comics. These happen to have images uh, from the Batman books. Not all of them, I think, are from the uh, Nightfall series. Maybe some of them look like you know a little older art. But um, it's an it's the typical shot of what uh, the Batman issue where Bane has Batman bent backwards over his knee, and 
Skycaps were popular during the 90s. So pogs were a big thing. Go out and get some of your ALF pogs out. They're going to be worth millions. The next page has uh, the American Comics and Entertainment page with uh, a big ad for uh, Nightfall. And we get the same image of the uh, overly muscled, I think, Kelly Jones Bane breaking Batman over his knee. We get the uh, list of dollar or ten for seven fifty, not bad comics, or the two dollar or ten for fifteen comics. They're listing cards, deluxe editions, and hot comics. Which uh, this time around, what have we got? Acadia, uh, the Prismatic issue number twenty is going for twenty five. Let's see what else we've got. Darker Image and Deathmate Prologue going for thirty dollars each. Manta, or I'm sorry, Max Limited Edition, number one, 30 bucks as well. Uh, Golden City with a Prismatic Foil, number 40. Uh, Savage Dragon uh, versus Megaton, number one, Gold. Now, Savage Dragon's still around. I've heard uh, that's actually a good book, so 30 bucks was still probably a bit much, but there you have it. Uh, and then we have X Uncanny X-Men number 248, uh, the first issue, or the first uh, copy of that going for 20 bucks. So, sadly, the uh, image and value titles, as usual, are well outpricing in the speculator market, the Marvel and the DC titles. So, there you go. Thanks, 90s. The next page, we get an ad for the Mike Carlin, Dan Jurgens, and Brett Breeding uh, book of Metal Men, which... I guess stars the new iteration of the Metal Men, which are, let me see, pull up their character names, uh, Gold, Platinum, Mercury, Iron, Tin, and Lead, respectively. Uh, it's a neat-looking ad, but the Metal Men just never really did anything for me. So, again, your mileage may vary. A few more pages in, we get the probably only thing that came out of the Bloodlines book, or the Bloodlines series of books, that actually did anything interesting. It's the Demon Annual number 2, which de- debuted the character of Hitman. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Hitman, go check out Hey Kids Comics. They did, I think they did a couple of episodes on Hitman, or maybe they were just talking about him in the, um, the Garth Ennis Spotlight on. I know they did that a few months back, so uh, again, plug for another comic book podcast, Hey Kid Comics, awesome show. And of course, the next page, if you can't get enough Bloodlines, there's Bloodlines Deathstorm, which brings you Deathstroke the Terminator Annual, the Annual, the Eclipso Annual, the Demon Annual, Batman Legends the Dark Knight Annual, Team Titans Annual, and Legion 93 Annual. Bloodlines. That storm. It's the 90s. A few more pages in, uh, we get an advertisement for a different Legion. This time it's the Legion of Super Heroes Archives, Volume 3, and we've got looks like a Lightning Lad, Sunboy, and Bonnell on the cover, and then there's two, so maybe Saturn Girl and Duplicate Girl? I'm not certain. My Legion knowledge is pretty sketchy, so... I know I've got at least four of the five. There's one in white with it looks like a D on her chest, and I have no idea who that is, but I'm pretty certain that's who the rest of the characters are. It says, uh, rep- representing the classic stories from Legion's fabled past and future. 
So, Legion Volume 3 before they were completely wiped out with Zero Hour and Infinite Crisis and whatever other things that have destroyed the Legion. And then, oddly enough, the next page is an advertisement for DC Universe, The Countdown Has Begun, Zero Hour, Be, be Prepared. And it's just this sort of back black background with a giant red clock, very a la Watchmen, counting down to, oddly enough, zero time on the clock, which is, I guess, where 12 should be, but I guess it's kind of a Watchmen-esque type clock that's going to go off when something bad happens. We'll have to find out here in a couple of months. The Guy Talk column has a lot of issues writing in favorably about, I think it was issue number 7? Yeah, it was issue number 7, where a guy basically shows up Hal Jordan. A lot of people were thankful that that finally happened, after all the stuff that happened to Guy in episode 25, or issue 25 of Green Lantern. So, Guy got his comeuppance, and it was pretty sweet. But the final, uh, well, not the final ad, the back inside cover is an ad for Sequest DSV, which was uh, penned by, or had executive producers Steven Spielberg and David Burke doing a sort of underwater sci-fi show with Roy Scheider in the lead, and what, Jonathan Brandis is the uh, Wesley Crusher on the uh, ship. It was a good show. Unfortunately, it had the inauspicious uh, release date or release time as running up right against Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. So I'm pretty certain most of us in comic book fandom were watching something else at the time. And finally, we've got the back outside cover saying, Players are armed and wireless. Approach with extreme caution. Two wireless controllers and an infrared sensor for the Sega Genesis or Super NES is the dual turbo game controller. Let me let you in on something. These game controllers, the wireless game controllers from the 1990s, were awful. You had to have essentially a direct line to the TV in order to play the game. Someone walked in front of you, then you were playing, basically you lost control of the character. It was horrible connection. These really didn't get developed very well and even nowadays with uh, the Wii and the Xbox 360 uh, remote controllers that are wireless they're not as sketchy but they still can have some problems so wireless controllers I don't know especially for this time period I wouldn't have plopped down any money for them but they're here for sale and claim obviously made some money off of them but that's it for ads that is it for the issues Whew, this was a well it wasn't much longer but there was a lot of stuff that we had to cover this time out uh, but it's an interesting storyline the Trinity stuff is really good and I'm hoping that you're enjoying it and I'm hoping that you'll be coming back next week where we finish up the Trinity storylines uh, with Green Lantern number 45, as well as uh, Dark Stars issue 12 and Legion 58, I believe. Hold on one second. Yep, amazingly enough, I was right. Plus, also, we'll get the second, uh, not prestige format, but uh, deluxe format, Trinity, DC Universe Trinity book. 
So we'll be covering those issues in the Green Lantern portion. And in the Guy Gardner portion, we will be wrapping up Chuck Dixon's Yesterday's Sin storyline, where we're going to find out a little bit about uh, some characters that are going to have a dramatic change in Guy Gardner's life. So definitely come back next week. Definitely go check out Comixology, because they're printing out digital copies of the Green Lantern books from this area era, as well as hopefully they'll be starting on the Guy Gardner books as well. If you haven't uh, found these books in trade, well, you're not, you're not going to find these books in trade, unfortunately. But if you haven't found these books in back issues, hopefully DC will be putting them out digitally in a reasonable price point. So if you want to follow along, that might be the way to go. But until then, I hope you guys have a good weekend, and I'll see you back here next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the citizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot lipson, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like looking Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast. Be sure to leave a review there. And if you're in another country and leave a review, shoot me an email. I'll be certain to read the review on the next show. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time wandering around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show is Three is a Magic Number, covered by Blind Melon from the Schoolhouse Rock album. It can also be found on the Best of Blind Melon album, which you can go download, buy, or download the song, of course, from Amazon.com. However, when you go to Amazon.com, I suggest you first go to the website 2TrueFreaks.Lipson.com. Whenever you go to 2TrueFreaks, click the Amazon.com button at the top of the page and go download music or make a purchase from Amazon, a small amount of money that goes into that purchase will be shunted back to the Two True Freaks website to make sure that their shows will stay on the air. So with Christmas coming around, holiday shopping being what it is, your best bet is to always check out Amazon.com, and your best bet to do it on the internet is to go through the website Two True Freaks.